Welcome to the Betrayal Trauma SOS Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Brockbank, and this week I am primarily speaking to a different audience than I'm accustomed to. I am addressing those in church leadership and or clergy positions about ways to help those experiencing betrayal trauma. I can relate from both the position of leaders and also from the perspective of someone who has experienced betrayal trauma. Let's learn together. I need to begin this podcast by letting you know that this isn't therapy. I'm not a therapist. But additionally, I'm not speaking with you today um, with any kind of official capacity church-wise either. While I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this episode is directed to all clergy and church leadership of any denomination. I take sole responsibility for my thoughts and research today. Also, while I hope that clergy from many denominations will find this useful, I want to say that I am most familiar with doctrine and policies from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I've chosen some quotes from church leaders and such that I feel would apply to many denominations that are specifically from my church, simply because that's what I know. However, I believe that if there is anything virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy, that I want to expand what I know— So if you have anything to add to this conversation, particularly from the standpoint of another denomination and perhaps your efforts on this subject matter, I would love to learn more and am seeking more knowledge. So please feel free to send me an email. Everything I use will be sourced in the description for this podcast, so feel free to reference those later. You should also know that my good husband is generously supportive of me doing this, which leaves him very vulnerable. I do not take his support and willingness to be vulnerable lightly, and am very, very grateful for him. I want to give credit where credit is due and let you know where the idea for this podcast stems from. It stems from an experience I had when I lived in Brigham City, Utah, and lived in the Brigham City, Utah South Stake of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In that stake, My dear and brave friend, Katie Willis, approached our stake president, that's a church leadership position, about what betrayal trauma was like and offered to train the bishops in our stake about awareness for betrayal trauma. Can I tell you that this training trickled down and benefited me personally as the spouse of someone with a sex addiction in beautiful ways that I am truly grateful for and benefit from today? I came to see that helping people have an awareness can make a difference. I follow in my friend's footsteps using my own way of walking and talking in the hope that clergy can have a better understanding of how to help those suffering from betrayal trauma. I want you to know that as a leader in your church, God has chosen you to comfort the weary and strengthen their feeble knees. Oh, how this applies to those suffering from betrayal trauma. Katie Willis, who I spoke about earlier, wrote in a letter to bishops, Quote, bishops, do not underestimate how much we as wives need you. God has called you as these women's bishop at this time for a reason. I am still married today because my bishops earned a place on my support team and took that role seriously. This can apply to men who are suffering as well. If your position in whatever church you belong to is different than a bishop, then feel free to rewind that sentence and listen again by substituting the title of bishop for priest, rabbi, pastor, 
maybe church counselor, Relief Society president, addiction recovery missionary, etc. When you think of a first responder at, say, a car accident, I invite you to consider what their job is. First responders are there to administer first aid. They are there to stop the bleeding, sometimes to perform CPR and to get the injured the help that they need. I hope that you will consider with me that when you have someone approach you as a member of the clergy about being betrayed by a loved one, particularly if the betrayal was sexual in nature and they recently discovered it, that you might look at yourself as a first responder. In my experience, this is not a time to delve super deep. It's not likely the best time to preach forgiveness, which can come later, maybe even much later. It is a time to administer first aid. Oftentimes, people are suffering from more acute emotional and spiritual damage than is visible. What you do in this critical period of time makes a difference. If we can turn trauma around quickly, then the damage is significantly diminished. When I talk about damage, I need to explain that trauma includes physiological changes to the brain, emotional consequences, and mental issues. The brain literally rewires, and there are changes that take time to heal. Long-term trauma can literally shrink parts of the brain, so therefore healing can take even more time, but it is possible. In his book, Treating Trauma from Sexual Betrayal by Dr. Kevin Skinner, he talks about a study that shows that almost 70% of people who are disclosed to about their loved one's sexual betrayal experience PTSD-type symptoms. This is a serious mental health issue, and for some, a full-blown crisis. Basically, you might see women, and possibly men as well, in your office who seem highly elevated, distressed agitated, distraught, and more. On the other end of the spectrum, they might be despondent, unresponsive, and are experiencing numbness of emotions. They may have dissociated from their emotions in these instances. I have a friend who said that she was yelling in the bishop's office, and I remember being in a state that resembled shock in one of my bishop's offices and was literally shaking. The hard thing is that you will also likely see their spouse sitting calmly maybe looking reasonable, remorseful, calm, and perhaps even casting glances at the betrayed spouse or at you with the look in their eyes that seems to say, see what I have to put up with? Can I suggest to you that this is typically not as it appears from the outside? There is a reason that the betrayed spouse is acting this way, and the damage is possibly more severe than what you can see. Something else as an ecclesiastical leader to consider is, Is there emotional, sexual, or physical abuse in the mix? I am certainly not of the opinion that everyone who struggles with pornography use is abusive. However, the presence of abuse is more common than is recognized. I share the following quote that stems from the church that I attend, but I assume that the general idea is pretty universal in scope. Corden B. Hinckley of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints said this, quote, I have in my office a file of letters received from women who cry out over the treatment they receive from their husbands in their homes. They tell of the activity of some of these men in church responsibilities. They even speak of men holding temple recommends, and they speak of abuse both subtle and open. They tell of husbands who lose their tempers and shout at their wives and children. They tell of men who demand offensive intimate relations. They tell of men who demean them 
and put them down, and of fathers who seem to know little of the meaning of patience and forbearance with the reference to their children. Close quote. Abuse can be so hard to see because one or both parties have denial in the mix and or might not even realize what is happening. A good example of this comes from the book Unwanted by Jay Stringer. He gives the example of a man who would view pornography, then act out what he had seen with his wife while imagining her to be someone else. I'm not a therapist, but from my vantage point, his wife was just abused sexually with other forms of abuse as possibilities in the scenario. The trick is, she likely doesn't completely understand that she was just used in such a degrading manner, but can likely tell that something was off, different, or wrong. A common way that emotional abuse is perpetuated in regards to sex addiction is described well by Dr. Omar Menwala in an episode on March 23rd of 2020 on the Helping Couples Heal podcast. I'll recap what I got out of his brilliant thoughts. Dr. Menwala gives the analogy about a house where the father has a basement that no one knows about. The abuse occurs when he starts to dig and make a trap door to the basement in secret. If he were to say to the family that he's going down to the basement that they all know about to sexually act out, this type of abuse wouldn't be occurring because the family would know their reality and could make decisions accordingly. This type of abuse is occurring by painting their reality different than it is. Rather than give you a checklist of things to check if abuse is present, which would likely be both massive and incomplete, I'm going to suggest a different tool. It is to ask God. You are likely an audience who is qualified to use this tool and who likely has a great deal of experience with it as well. While you likely won't say to the couple that abuse is present based off of this understanding, it will affect what you do. You might consider asking if it's a possibility, which can plant seeds that will hopefully instigate a healing process. Hopefully, as faith-based leaders, we can agree that abuse in any form is unacceptable. It is my belief that if ecclesiastical leaders are aware that abuse often accompanies sex addiction, they will hopefully respond with greater awareness and less casualness. There will likely be more compassion towards the victim and a greater effort to get them the real help that they need. It will be easier to see that safety is compromised and needs to be established. Boundaries can be encouraged with greater understanding and urgency. While this podcast episode focuses more on the betrayed spouse in regards to the sex-addicted spouse who may be perpetuating abuse, stronger efforts of accountability may be utilized, along with a more concerted effort to get them the help that they desperately need as well. The concept of emotional safety is often misunderstood, but someone experiencing trauma has some physical things going on in their brain. To demonstrate this, here's a quote by Bessel van der Kolk from the book, The Body Keeps the Score. He talks about the signals in the brain being on high alert as he says, quote, is that smoke you smell the sign that your house is on fire and you need to get out fast? Or is it coming from the steak you put over too high a flame? The amygdala, host note, traumatized brain, continuing, doesn't make such judgments. It just gets you ready to fight back or escape even before the frontal lobes get a chance to weigh in with their assessment, close quote. As you can see, 
This is a distressing way to live, and there is a constant state of emotional arousal that often manifests itself in fight, flight, or freeze. One of the most needed things for traumatized people to function at a better level is to establish safety. As their ecclesiastical leader, you can help establish safety by doing the following 10 things. Number one, believe the betrayed spouse. Dr. Adam Moore, who has a PhD as a marriage and family therapist and who gives impressive presentations on the topic of sex addiction and betrayal trauma, said the following in a document titled, A Letter to My Church Leader, quote, Addicts are usually skilled at creating a beautiful and believable facade for others. He will come across as stable, honest, and accountable in your office. Before you accept what he is telling you about himself, listen to his wife's experience. She will tell you whether his story is accurate. She lives with him every day. In all the years I've been a therapist, I do not recall ever working with a wife whose story about her husband's addiction was inaccurate. Trust her story and her instincts. If she feels something is off or wrong, she can trust that it is. The husband may come, confessing to you that he has sinned. He may be contrite and want to change. However, almost universally, what he tells you early on is only a small portion of what he has actually done. If his wife shares with you that more is going on, or that she suspects more is going on, please trust her. This certainly rings true in my case. Dr. Moore obviously wrote this for women, as that is the more common scenario. But having men in my life who suffer from betrayal trauma, this would likely apply to them as well. Number two, listening with compassion and leaving out judgment. One example of a common judgment born from a reasonable misunderstanding that I and others have experienced is the concept that sex addiction is an issue because the betrayed spouse has not been meeting sexual needs and desires for their addicted spouse. I apologize in advance for giving details that might make you uncomfortable, but in the hopes that it's helpful, I will tell you that in our first 17 and a half years of marriage, I made myself sexually available for my husband whenever he wanted for the most part and then some. His addiction, like many, many others, in fact, most of the women that I've sat with, began way before marriage. I came to learn that you can't cure sex addiction with sex. If you would like to know more about that, please listen to Episode 5 of Betrayal Trauma SOS as I address that issue there. Number three, normalizing their emotions with statements like, it makes sense that you would feel that way, can go a long way towards establishing safety. Whatever you do, I beg you to not look at the traumatized person or state anything that might insinuate that they are crazy. I promise that a traumatized person is already feeling crazy or out of control in one way or another. Number four, Consider asking them if their physical needs are met. So often, people in trauma aren't eating, sleeping, or functioning at a normal level. The mention of this might gently remind them to evaluate how they can better meet these needs if possible and can help them feel valuable and cared about. Number five, and this suggestion does not apply to all denominations. For me, though, safety with my ecclesiastical leaders was better established when my husband's confessions, particularly for things that had gone on for long periods of time and that I had to discover on my own, were followed up with consequences. 
This is not because I was punitive in nature, but it helped me feel seen and that God takes seriously broken covenants. It also provided safety in that my husband took more seriously his behavior. Clergy, what you do here matters. Please consider the following from Dallin H. Oaks of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And just a note, I took out one word to make context easier today, but it doesn't change anything about the message. Oaks says, quote, At a recent state conference, a woman handed me a letter. Her husband had also served in important church callings for many years while addicted to pornography. She told of great difficulty in getting priesthood leaders to take this problem of pornography seriously. I got all kinds of responses, like, I was overreacting, or it was my fault. The bishop we have now has been great, and now after 15 years, my husband is trying to deal with his addiction, but now it is 15 years harder to quit for him, and the loss has been incalculable. Close quote. I can testify in personal ways that this woman is not alone in such experiences. I'll repeat again that what you do matters. In my experience, better accountability for the addicted spouse can aid in them taking their situation and repentance more seriously. The ultimate hope is that the soul of the individual will be saved, but also that an entire family unit will be saved. I cannot overemphasize how important it is to take this responsibility seriously should it be something that you are charged with. Another option in regards to this might be what a few of my friends experienced when their husbands went before disciplinary councils and were given light or no consequence. My friends were, however, spoken with individually and with great compassion about the reasons for those decisions. These leaders made certain that my friends felt valuable, seen, and that the inspiration they received suggested that God wanted the leader's responses to be exceedingly merciful in these instances, but that they understood the seriousness of what had happened. Number six, in general, what the betrayed spouse is going through will be complex. Counseling about something this complex should likely be directed to qualified therapists as it is easy to say the wrong thing. Side note, Addiction and betrayal trauma oftentimes take years to heal from, which make short-term counseling services a poor choice in general. For clergy in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I want to point out that LDS Family Services states on their website that they provide short-term counseling. Please consider getting specialized treatment and understand that this is likely a process that will last two to five years. Consider those who specialize in betrayal trauma and sex addiction. You might recommend them looking into a certified sex addiction therapist, otherwise known as a CSAT, or a therapist who works with a sex addiction program, such as Lifestar or Addo Recovery. Links to those websites are in the description section of this podcast. Number seven, consider having something physical on hand for those suffering from betrayal trauma. Imagine what a small gift might mean to someone from an ecclesiastical leader and how valuable and seen they might feel. In the Brigham City South Stake that I mentioned earlier, they made care packages for women suffering from betrayal trauma that included a bracelet that said, You are enough, a picture of Christ, letters of compassion from leaders, a list of local resources that had been heavily considered, and more. 
Very soft blankets are another thing you might consider gifting. Number eight, keeping in frequent contact with the betrayed spouse can also be helpful to establish safety. The addicted spouse typically gets lots of attention, while the betrayed spouse often gets overlooked and might even have greater needs. I once had a bishop that would text me regularly to make sure that I felt valuable, seen, and that my needs were met. I could feel his genuine concern and care and to this day appreciate his efforts on my behalf. Number nine, forgiveness is within the realm of church clergy to promote. However, I beg you that if you are prompted to approach the subject, to do so cautiously and with great compassion. Please allow the patron to know that forgiveness is a process and not usually an event, and that is okay. Also, forgiveness is often confused with the restoration of trust. People need to know that forgiveness is for them. However, boundaries are likely needed to ensure safety. Forgiveness and trust are separate entities. For anyone who is a believer in Christ like I am, you might appreciate this quote from Hank R. Smith, who says, quote, Being Christ-like means being tolerant and forgiving. However, Jesus had boundaries. When Nazareth tried to kill him, he never returned. He told Peter when he had crossed a line. He called out leaders for hypocrisy. He refused to speak to Herod. Clear boundaries are Christ-like. Close quote. Number 10, and I save the best for last, at least in my opinion. One of the best things that you could possibly do, particularly as a representative of God, is to guide those with hearts, quote, pierced with deep wounds, close quote, that's from Jacob 2.35, to the only true source of healing, who is God. I intentionally chose a scripture from the Old Testament so that it can apply to more denominations here. This is from Malachi 4.2, quote, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. As human beings, we have no ability to heal in and of ourselves. However, that power does reside with God. Directing the heartbroken to the only true source of healing can bring the most powerful relief. Kirk Frankham interviewed Katie Willis during a recent Leading Saints Summit. And I love what Katie says in regards to this. Quote, When I was first starting this process, I was so fragile. For me, I felt like as my priesthood leaders were holding my Savior's hand, they reached out and grabbed mine and then brought me closer to him gradually and gradually until I could grab his hand for myself. Close quote. First responders, representatives of God, I want you to know that your role in healing is critical. Gaining tools of understanding will help more people heal than you can possibly imagine. Your selfless service is seen, and many will be blessed because of the education you gain to help God's children. Please know that if while you have been listening to this episode, you noticed unintentional mistakes that you made in your efforts to help, you aren't alone. After learning some of these same principles, I noticed some unintentional errors that I made when I was in a church leadership position as well. The process for repairing such things is to apologize for and repair what we can, leave the rest in God's capable hands, and do better in the future. We are all subject to error and are treasured by God despite imperfections. 
Thank you for participating with me today on Betrayal Trauma SOS. Your being here says that you want to help people heal, and it is my belief that your righteous desires in this area will benefit people. Other episodes that might prove helpful for ecclesiastical leaders include episode two titled, Betrayal Trauma, What Is It? And episode five titled, You Can't Fix Sex Addiction With Sex. Also, I would like to suggest that Betrayal Trauma SOS might be a good and free resource to suggest to your wounded patrons. Betrayal Trauma SOS can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and at BetrayalTraumaSOS.com. Let's heal together.